0: Welcome back to We Robots, the podcast all about the works of Isaac Asimov. My name is Manning, and I've got the Frankenstein Complex. Joining me is Danny, who has the Dracula Complex. What? And Liz, who has the Frankenstein Simple.
1: Uh...
0: (laughs) It's a bit early for this, but April Fools!
1: Oh, Oh, okay, you actually got me there. (laughs) I was like, oh, we're off to a rough start,
2: guys. I appreciate being the vampire, though. I really do.
0: You don't even know how many possibilities I wrote for that joke. (laughs) But it is appropriate that we're talking about various other possibilities, because our book this month is Lords and Ladies, the story where Discworld takes the idea of elves being better than humans and runs with it.
2: I just thought it was going to be more royal shenanigans. I was not expecting this, and I was beyond pleased.
1: Yeah, I don't think that was very far off from what I was expecting because it feels like after all we've been through with these characters, it, it feels kinda weird to just like be like, oh one year later and just continue on like all the stuff that's happened so far hasn't. But when I was like double checking that I was gonna get the right book for my library and then I saw that uh Ruth Cooley Coley was listed in the characters of this book, I was like, Wait, wait a second, what?
0: <laughs> yeah. Sort of a crossover, this one. hmm With that, let's do the trivia dance, with help from the secret extra sister, who lives in the underbelly of a parasite universe.
1: <laughs> Doesn't sound like the most pleasant place. The
2: 14th Discworld book and 4th in the Witches series, Lords and Ladies is heavily inspired by a Midsummer Night's Dream, with its emphasis on the Fae. It is sprinkled with other Shakespeare references, most notably Varence having kingship thrust upon him, as a reference to the famous quote from Twelfth Night. The specific line about the past being another country is also nearly a direct quote from The Go-Between by L. P. Hartley. Crop circles are a common occurrence in rural areas, referring to the flattening of plants, such as corn, into circular patterns, seemingly without explanation. This story suggests a connection between them and the Neolithic stone circles common throughout northern Europe and Great Britain, as well as the natural phenomena of mushrooms growing in circular patterns known as fairy rings. And this book posits a slight variation on the concept of parallel universes as presented by Ray Bradbury in A Sound of Thunder, but we won't know which version is more accurate until multiverse theory as a whole gets either proven or discredited.
1: Lords and Ladies was published in 1992 and translated into German in 1995, Dutch in 1996, and French in 1999, with a second German edition in 2013. The audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, was released in December 1999 and lasts nine hours. At time of recording, the story has not been adapted into any other mediums.
0: The book begins with a note from Terry Pratchett, warning the reader that this story is a direct sequel to Witches Abroad and Weird Sisters before it.
2: It was it a was pretty nice tie-in.
0: I wonder what made him decide to put a continuity warning in this book specifically, since I know that there are people who started with this one and enjoyed it. At a guess, maybe people read other more continuity-driven books like Reaper Man and like, wrote letters complaining about the lack of context they had.
1: I kind of get it, because it's like a a lot of the books aren't direct sequels, and so I think being like, hey, I'm doing something a little bit different here, just as a heads up.
0: I don't recall that that continues on for the rest of the series. We'll, We'll have to see. The story proper begins with a young woman as she leads a young man on a friendly chase. This, we soon learn, is Esmeralda Weatherwax back before she became the witch we know and love? Love.
1: Yeah, I think that's appropriate.
0: Respect. Appreciate.
1: I kind of like the little bit of, like, ambiguity about who the girl is at the start of this. Because I kind of had a thought, I was like, well, this kind of sounds like Granny, but that doesn't make sense. And then once we get a little bit later, I thought, oh, yeah, I totally have it figured out who this is. And I was totally, totally wrong.
2: I was basically in the same boat, but only because immediately after starting that section, I forgot about the, oh, hey, this is 50 or some years ago in the past. So I'm like, oh, hey, that reminds me of Granny. And then they got to the stair. and I'm like, that is Granny. But wait, this is a young person. It can't be Granny. Oh, wait, it's in the past. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: It's interesting seeing this version of Granny It's implied that she did a fair amount of growing up in the decades between this scene and her first appearance in Equal Rights, but she's fundamentally the same character. Uh, I'd say probably a little bit more in tune with her character in this book than this scene is with her in Equal Rights.
2: She was still getting her footing in Equal Rights.
0: As was Terry Pratchett.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) we've all grown a lot.
0: I hope our listeners will forgive the callback. I know that not everyone listens to every episode in sequence. Esmeralda ends up losing her young man in the forest, but forgets all about him when she stumbles upon a circle of stones known as the Dancers. Inside that circle, this young woman sees a beautiful lady. This is the Queen of the Elves, and she offers Esmeralda power if she will step through the circle to join her. Esmeralda interrogates the offer frustrating the queen, and ultimately rejecting her.
2: She does that a lot, I've noticed. She doesn't like it when people get up in her business.
0: Truer
1: words were never spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Granny definitely appreciates and values her autonomy.
0: Well, not just hers, but everyone's, really.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
0: For those who didn't listen to the Witches Abroad episode, that one was more focused on fairy tale stories, and Weird Sisters was very much about Shakespeare. With the introduction of the elves, it seems that the Witches series is going back to Shakespeare now.
2: God, I love Midsummer Night's Dream. (laughs) It was so funny. (laughs) I love the adaptations of it, too.
1: I'll admit it took me a long while to realize that, like, oh, yeah, Midsummer's Night's Dream, because, like, I haven't read any Shakespeare. So it's like kind of just forgot it was a thing.
0: This is not really a useful tangent to go on, but, Danny, you probably would enjoy this specifically. My family and I were visiting London when I was a kid. We went to see a performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream that was out in an outdoor theater, practically right up next to a forest. Mm-hmm. And I forget which scene in the play, but a random fox came out onto the stage and like just everybody stopped and just stared at it for a solid <laughs> minute until it left. <laughs> but the best part Baby. of that is that at the end of the play, when everyone was doing their bows, the fox came back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's oh, magnificent. That. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. It was magical.
2: Ah, ah. I love a
0: fox. Mm -hmm. I love them very...
2: I, I have a plush fox. I must now hold it.
0: Fantastic. I'm
2: going to hold it through this recording now.
0: So, 50 years after Esmeralda turns down the Queen's offer, Nanny Og's eldest son, Jason, is tending to his forge. Tonight, he has a special client in need of special horseshoes. He does the job blindfolded, and the client approves of Jason's work in that voice of all capital letters. Yay! <laughs> Gratuitous death cameo? Check.
2: <laughs> Gratuitous death cameo?
0: It does have plot relevance. It, it does, it does, and I'm very glad for that.
1: I really appreciate the kind of magic that Pratchett attaches to blacksmithing and as a result iron and all that in this, as we'll probably get into very soon, because it just feels like you're taking this very, very old tradition and then kind of mystifying it up in a way that's really fun. And I feel like blacksmithing probably is not something that gets a lot of that in literature.
0: It definitely deserves
1: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, the Lanker witches have returned from their world tour. Granny Weatherwax examines her cottage, Nanny Og terrorizes her various daughters-in-law, and Magrat gets the surprise of her life. King Varence has arranged their wedding without so much as asking her, and he is too absorbed in his vision of progress to really notice how she feels about that.
2: It was surprising and upsetting, I also couldn't help but feel like he was also falling into his own story stereotype. Blinded by Progress is is very much a character trait that we see in, um, in, in fiction, that we see in fiction.
1: When we got to this section, I kind of started to get a feeling that it was going to be a motif in this book, if you will, that it's going to ultimately be about... Talking to other people like communicating what you want and what they want and how things work better when you do that and I feel like that was kind of reinforced through other events in the book but it kind of feels like it falls flat on that I can get that because especially uh Magrat's like arc in the last book well if it's you can call it an arc her character is very much defined by Her wet headness, you know, she doesn't know how to speak for herself. She doesn't know how to, like, be bold and be a real witch, kind of as how Granny thinks of it. And I feel like that was going to be part of her arc in this book, is her realizing she needs to speak up for herself to get what she wants.
0: And I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get further on.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: First, I want to talk about King Varence. For those who missed out on Weird Sisters, Varens was the put-upon court jester, much smarter than those around him, but trapped within his role by his sense of duty. Now he's the king, and out of a genuine desire to do a good job ruling the country, he's trying to apply relatively modern technology. It's not quite how I would have expected the character to develop, but it's an interesting angle that allows him to still be in the stories, since Discworld only keeps the characters that have humor value. Now, about the wedding and lack of proposal, Magrat being stripped of her autonomy like that is deeply frustrating to me, primarily because I want to like King Varence, and that's not an okay thing to do. There's, like, context further on, but the way the narrative justifies this decision to just make this decision for Magrat just rubs me the wrong way. I don't have a good conclusion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I have...
2: I will be getting to that very shortly.
1: Yeah. I think part of why it is so frustrating is because it's even mentioned in the last book that Magrat really likes Varence. Like, she really wants to be with him, and she has her own conflicts about that and who she thinks she's supposed to be, but then suddenly she comes back, and it's like she doesn't have a choice in that matter anymore.
0: Across the land, crop circles begin to form in cornfields, in herb gardens, and over at Unseen University... One even forms in the hair of Archchancellor Mustrom Ridcully.
1: Oh, so that's what that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like this scene especially because it's like kind of this foreboding thing about crop circles popping up in these like kind of rural and very natural places. And then it cuts to him panicking over his hair.
2: <laughs> We've had our zombie book. Is this the one about aliens?
0: <laughs> I mean, kind of. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right, actually, now that that I think about it.
0: The Lanker witches gather to discuss what the crop circles mean. Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax know all about it, but they don't explain it properly to Magrat. This upsets the youngest witch, who lashes out at the other two by reminding them that she is going to be queen. Far from being cowed, Granny and Nanny basically give Magrat a cordial dismissal this is witch business and magrat is going to be far too busy doing her thing
2: yeah this this whole thing just upset me for a few reasons with every one of the witches books so far i've been hoping that magrat will just break into the fold someday and she'll and she'll finally have her place in the trio because she's supposed to isn't she that's you know she's one of the witches it's they're plural they're not just a duo they have to be a trio don't they I, this book was basically me accepting that no character characters narratives will go where the character's narrative will it just it still bothered me though that just how often she was dismissed how often like her views of things were seen as either just improper or odd or yeah <laughs> I did make the note to myself that the older two witches holding on to their ideals so heavily, especially with Granny, was off-putting and really kind of hits me hard about how I want to be open-minded about things, despite knowing that I'm also going to end up stuck in my ways when I get older. I can fight it, but I can already kind of see myself thinking, no, this is the way things have to be because it's the way I think I think sh- things should be.
0: Big mood.
1: And I think it's like a really thoughtful way to like consider it and how that's kind of a frustrating thing. Projecting onto Magrat Club hype. hype. <laughs> this is the second part where I feel like I was kind of reinforced in my belief that this book was going to be about communication because the witches are not communicating here. Granny and Nanny are very much making a point to not Like, include Magra and their club, which she has, like, way more than earned her place to be there, if she needed to earn it at all. And, yeah, I feel a little, like, frustrated that that didn't end up happening.
0: I am nodding emphatically. Although, to that point, it's kind of the established thing that Granny Weatherwax, like, is nasty to her friends, right? Like... She makes a lot of mean comments to Nanny, specifically, and part of why it feels like she's bullying Magrat is because Magrat doesn't have the thick skin to not see it as being mean. Yeah. That it's rejection rather than just how Granny expresses affection.
2: Granny interacts with people, everyone, in a very set manner. She's brusque, she's coarse, she's very to the point with everyone she meets versus, I suppose, what our normal sense is that you have a slightly different relationship with everybody. You want to be nice to people, to everybody, Um, and that means sort of catering to their personality as well. Like, I have a very different relationship with my mother than I do with my brother and even from him, my best friends. Still understanding why Granny seemed a bit more aggressive than normal made it a little better but still not okay.
0: It's also a major motif of the witches series, that a witch has to present herself as capable, wise, and important at all times. And this is definitely demonstrated in the way that Granny and Nanny treat Magret becoming queen as her stepping down in the world. My gut reaction to the bullying that Magret gets from the other two witches is to dislike them for it, but I do know that they're doing it to help her toughen up.
2: I. From that point of view, I can also kind of see it, um, because from reading sort of between the lines, it seemed like even the townsfolk in Magrat's area didn't quite, they don't respect her. And we all know that Granny and even Nanny are very strong in the belief of, you are a witch, you have to command respect.
0: While all this is happening, back up at the Circle of Stones, the dancers, a hunter named William Scrope pursues a deer into the circle. As the deer enters... Something else comes out, and it kills the hunter before he can react. In the realm of the elves, the queen is informed that her pet has escaped, and she laughs, saying it will have fun in the human realm. I say human realm, it's like the human and dwarf and troll and (laughs) other, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, discworld realm as we know it. (laughs) The mortal realm, perhaps? I guess? Sure, let's go with that. Magrat
0: has some difficulty adjusting to the royal lifestyle, especially the way that people grovel at her and the ridiculous clothing she's expected to wear. She talks about this with some of the staff, including Nanny Ogg's youngest son, Sean, who is the palace guard and general job doer.
1: We love you, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sean's a good boy. He provides some very nice scenes of, like, levity, especially when things kind of start to hit the fan later on.
0: Soon enough, Granny and Nanny discover that there are new witches in town, led by a girl formerly known as Lucy Talkley, but who has renamed herself Diamanda. She gave in to the same offer that Granny refused years ago, and has been learning magic from the elves.
2: A lot of this book to me was opposition. There was so much just compare-contrast, duality, dichotomy, however you want to say it. It's there. The comparison between Lucy and Magrat really just threw me for a loop because I wasn't of the mind at this point that Granny shows affection by being rude and I also hadn't realized that she is that way to everyone because when she started antagonizing Diamanda or Lucy, it just spilled out in a way, and you're thinking, is this what they wanted Magrat to be like? But they hate how she's doing quote-unquote magic, because the way they act with, like, crystals and cards, they're like her. Magrat's also very much into the ritualistic part of what she does, but in the eyes of the other two witches, they aren't proper. It just... It was confusing at this point in time, because I was I was caught up thinking, does Granny actually like this girl, or is she just dead set on showing her she's wrong, or is she going to- are either one of them going to take on an apprentice after this? It was confusing.
0: Granny and Nanny pay a visit to Diamanda's coven, which is full of girls who have similarly changed their names, such as Agnes Perdisha Knit.
1: So I kind of got a similar vibe that it would feel appropriate for especially Granny to like take on an apprentice to like take her spot when she is eventually gone and Agnes seemed like a really good fit for that because we spent so much time in her point of view when we're getting introduced to the coven and then she comes back and like talks to the witches on her own and I feel like maybe she's not as aggressive and forward as Granny is but she still like did kind of a ballsy thing of like re-confronting these people who kind of made fun of her.
2: True I I was getting the sense of important character flags going up around her.
0: I do wish that Agnes showed up in more of this story because she kind of drops out of it
2: I liked her I just had one thing before we, we go on. I was reading the whole time her chosen name as Perdita rather than Perdisha, which compared to the collar that they put on the librarian later on, I was like, ah, it's Pongo and Perdita. <laughs> 101 Dalmatians up in here.
0: <laughs> it, it might be Perdita. I, I was thinking like Perdition.
2: Could be either way. <laughs>
0: Uh, During this scene, Granny Weatherwax mocks the fancy names that the girls give themselves. I will say in context, it's clear that she's just calling out their poor understanding of what it actually means to be a witch. But in general, it's not cool to make fun of somebody for changing their name.
1: Yeah, I think that's appropriate.
0: Diamanda stands up to the two old witches, calling them hags, and challenging Granny Weatherwax to a duel. Granny, who normally has a rock-solid sense of self, lets her pride get the best of her and accepts. As she and Nanny leave, Granny Weatherwax admits to herself that she's feeling out of sorts, likely because she has the sense that she's about to die.
2: This threw me. A lot of this book threw me, so I'm gonna try to refrain from using that that phrase repeatedly. It It was startling. This scene was startling, if only because of that last sentence as soon as we got like, wait, what? What, this is gran- granny can't die granny is immortal mm-hmm. no but then you re- mm-hmm. but then you remember this is the disc and there's no such thing as immortality no unless under very specific circumstances as we've shown in reaper man even death can die yeah mhm
0: Back at Unseen University, the wizards receive an invitation from Lanker Castle to attend the royal wedding. This prompts Archchancellor Ridcully to reminisce about his boyhood, spending summers up in that region, and about a woman he used to know. (laughs) He resolves to accept the invitation, bringing along the librarian, the deeply delirious bursar, and, returning from moving pictures, the newest member of the faculty, Ponder Stibbins.
2: He makes me laugh. They all do.
0: Stuff like this is why I recommend the publication order as the best way to read the Discworld books. This may be a witch's story, but it contains important developments for the general arc of the Wizards subseries, which we'll probably discuss further another time. Returning to Lanker, Magrat arrives to see Granny and Diamanda's duel, a staring contest with the sun itself. Magrat talks to Nanny Og, and they concoct a plan. Nanny tricks one of her grandchildren into injuring himself. When the child screams, Diamanda continues staring at the sun, but Granny turns to check if the boy is injured. Diamanda's coven declares that she wins, but the townsfolk retort, at Nanny's prompting, that a true witch is someone who cares about others enough to look when a child screams.
1: And I think this ultimately highlights the like difference between Diamanda's Coven and the witches is that the witches know that it if you're powerful, the really important thing is that you are responsible about that. Well, Diamanda's Coven and her just really want the power. they don't want the responsibility that comes with having to take care of things as a result
2: yeah they they don't seem to understand at all that part of being a witch is, midwifing, it's tending to the dead, it's Nanyog making a pig cure, pulling up herbs from eight different locations, it's uh Magrat also, it's doctoring as well as it is uh, advice and all sorts of things, and they're just like, ah yes, magic, prestidigitation, here we go.
0: Yeah, they're sort of taking the wizard's approach to magic, aren't they? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Yes, they
0: are. Meanwhile, The Lanker-Morris men, the country's best and only dance team, are practicing a play that they will perform as entertainment at the royal wedding, but they're struggling to find a spot where nobody will see them. Eventually, they resolve to go up to the dancers, since nobody ever goes there. This is the
2: point where they were talking about the actors and mentioned that the wedding was on Midsummer Night, and my only reaction to that was, oh, my god. Please no. (laughs)
0: Oh, yes.
2: They went there and I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did because I don't know Shakespeare very well beyond what I learned in school, but I did greatly appreciate Midsummer Night's Dream.
1: I appreciate uh, Jason's sense here of when something starts to go wrong because it implies like his experience with iron and blacksmithing is kind of like part of him like physically. And so he can kind of get it. a vibe that things are not okay when they're there.
2: I also love the the running gag of the stick and bucket dance. <laughs> <laughs> every time I came across it, I had, every time I read stick and bucket dance, I had to find somebody to read the quote aloud to, just to see if they'd laugh. And they usually did. It's like, what is the stick and bucket dance?
0: Dangerous is what it is.
2: How did all these people get injured? <laughs>
0: On the road from Ankh-Morpork, the wizards are joined by none other than Casananda, the world's second greatest lover, returning from his appearance in Witches Abroad. Along the way, they discuss parallel universes, with the idea that there are many versions of themselves going down different legs through the Trousers of Time. There's also a mention of parasite universes, and how when different universes grow close to each other, it's
1: indicated
0: by crop circles.
2: That makes a whole lot of sense in just the weirdest way or like, ah, yes, this.
1: I appreciate that, like, because the witches' kind of magic is very mystical and, like, unspoken and things just, like, are its instinct. But the wizard's kind of magic is very sciencey and, like, specific and it's got details galore. And I kind of like hearing the little bit of, like, oh, this is what the wizards think is happening while the witches are, like, experiencing it.
0: Personally, I'm most interested in the possibility of perpendicular universes, which I speculate would intersect with other universes as an atom-thin sheet across the entire width of space.
2: Pardon me as I steal that concept for use in some of my own writing?
0: By all means.
1: Well, there is some stuff in, like, if you get really into, uh, like, astrophysics or whatever that branch of science is called— there is some kind of theory that uh, our how our universe exists, like atoms exist in like four or five or whatever dimensions. Um And so as a result that like there are like moments where that kind of happens. I think I read something about
2: that. I don't know if it's pseudoscience or not, but I like the concept too much. So nobody correct me. <laughs> but I think... I heard somewhere about there being wounds on our universe that is speculated that came from collisions with other universes.
1: Huh. That's weird. I just, and I, this stuff is a little bit over my head, but my boyfriend is very much into uh, space and all that, and he has tried to explain it to me before.
2: <laughs> I'm on the opposite end of things. I like the microbiology and the void between atoms. It's so big and so small at the same time.
0: I conceptually like space, and I know enough about space to be able to usually answer questions on Jeopardy, but that's about it.
2: (laughs) I enjoy the concept of the Void.
0: On a moderately related note back at the Parallel Universe stuff, uh, I'd suggest anyone who's interested in the concept of Parallel Universes and Discworld to go check out the Long Earth book series. It's not particularly funny, but it's got some interesting postulation about human development once freed from resource constraints. Back into the book that we are discussing, Margaret finds relief from the royal treatment in the form of the palace beekeeper, Mr. Brooks. They talk about bees, and how nature is disgusting, and how there can be only one queen in the hive.
2: I don't know about you, but that sounds like an important line to me.
1: As somebody who very much like loves and appreciates bees, I just uh, like when they pop up in things, especially when they're actually like important in those things. Bees are good.
0: I appreciate them.
1: But uh, oh god, no!
0: I'm probably <laughs> cutting that one. <laughs> <laughs> Granny Weatherwax finds Diamanda at the dancers and warns the girl about the danger in consorting with elves. Blind with spite, Diamanda runs into the circle of magnetic stones, and Granny reluctantly chases her into the elfish realm.
2: I greatly appreciate the imagery of them running in and then nails from Granny's boots popping out as, as they go past, just from the force of the magnets. Magnets!
0: How do they work?
2: I have no idea, but I'm pseudosciencing enough to have floating islands in one of my stories.
0: Granny and Diamanda barely manage to escape but Diamanta has been hit by one of the elves' poisonous arrows. What's worse, one of the elves managed to follow them through, but Nanny is able to take it down with a clothes iron. I think that's a very witch way to go about having weapons, is just take whatever stuff that can work as a weapon, but is also just useful most of the time. Witches don't go for swords, typically, they go for knives, because when you're not in a fight, you can use them to chop stuff. Witching in Discworld is very much about the practical, is what I'm saying. Yeah. The witches bring both Demanda and the elf to Lanker Castle so that Magrat can treat the poisoning and so they can throw the elf in the dungeon where it's trapped in iron. Granny takes Varence off to the side to explain the nature of elves. They are glamorous in the truest sense of the word, meaning that they project a magical glamour which makes people see the elves as beautiful, perfect beings, and themselves as low and unworthy. In fact, well, I, I hate to use the term, but there's really no better way to phrase it than they are a race of sadistic psychopaths who delight in torture and cruelty.
2: I have to appreciate the nod to cats and mice, particularly when looking at Gribo. Aside from that, what kind of brought me back into appreciation and like okay no they really do care about magrat is the choice to bring d'amanda to magrat for treatment
1: i kind of wish you would have like lingered on maybe the like consequences of this scene a little bit more later on in the book just because i feel like it would provide a lot of like value to magrat's character to be like yeah maybe she's not a traditional witch but you know what she is really good at this specific thing that is part of being a witch.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely, I can agree with that. Going on to the elf stuff specifically, this is a very interesting take on elves as a concept, because so much of fantasy media tends to follow in Tolkien's footsteps, having this race of beautiful, pointy-eared white people who are the best at everything. This is basically taking that idea and bringing the inherent toxicity of the uh, concept into the actual text. The idea of inherent superiority through birth is culturally poisonous, And in this story, that poison is actualized as cruelty.
2: I also had it as a slightly more refreshing take. We all know, like, Tinkerbell and the cute fairies and everything like that, but as soon as these were brought up, I'm like, Oh, this is the court. This is the wild hunt. This isn't just the elves and the fairies. This is the fae that everyone was so afraid of in folklore. And it's honestly refreshing to see that in any form of media.
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like a return to like an older tradition about what people thought of like elves and the fae.
2: Especially since my mom writes elves and I've been hearing a lot about it lately. It's like fun slice of life political drama stuff. Yeah, like the elves and the fae are different species and the humans are really superstitious of both of them. They think you can make a a fae disappear by throwing salt at it. Can you? No, they just find it hilarious. But the Fae can turn invisible.
0: Back up at the dancers, the Lanker Morris men have a less than stellar rehearsal before they get drunk and pass out. Their sleep full of strange dreams.
2: This I wish they had expanded on a little bit because I was very intrigued about the how. I want to know, like, how they all of this happened later on. It just seems to have been glossed over.
0: Definitely feels like there was a scene missing.
1: I'm glad it wasn't just me this time. Yeah, it feels like there is a missed opportunity for some like really good imagery at least.
0: At the castle, Magrat and Verence have dinner together and discuss their wedding and various other developments planned for the country, as well as a special book that Verence is expecting.
1: Oh, the married life. Yeah. I appreciate this scene particularly because it feels like king varance and magrat are like making an effort to start to try to like actually communicate here because it kind of feels like that has not really happened up to this point point. and i don't know it feels very much like reminiscent of how they were in weird sisters
2: i think i got a little wrapped up in this part whereas i didn't quite see the communication though yes i i agree it did happen i was more wrapped up in wow magrat really doesn't feel at home anywhere does she she doesn't like being queen and she didn't like what came with being a witch. So what's she going to do?
0: Ultimately, she will continue to experience that discomfort wherever she goes until she learns to accept herself.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Which is valuable and important information and can be a really hard thing to learn. I'm still trying to learn it. Yeah, same. I very much believe
2: in having a home somewhere, which honestly can coincide with having a hobby. Mhm. Something you can you can fall back on and be comfortable
0: in. Like podcasting wink. <laughs> I mostly wanted to touch on this scene because it's very sweet and incredibly humanizing for both characters. It reminds the reader that these two genuinely care about each other, and also that they are phenomenal dorks who want to learn sex from a book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> true. Oh god, true.
0: Utter Virgins. <laughs> 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 the wizards and Casanunda arrive in lanker along with the mail Verence arrives too late to prevent sean ogg from discovering his special delivery a book on what was supposed to be marital arts but is actually martial
1: very fortunately for the king yeah that could have been awkward
0: dodged a bullet <laughs> in the castle magrat sneaks into Verence's room and discovers how the king sleeps.
2: This was the humanizing moment for me. You get pulled in by his kingly, attempted kingly demeanor, where, like, he wants what's best for his country, and he's dismissive of Magrat, and you're like, what happened to the variants we knew? And this was it.
1: Yeah, I think you're really, like, on, like, hitting the nail on the head there, because I think it shows that... Like, variance has changed, you know, like, both in his status and his responsibilities, but he still views them very much the same way as he did when he was just the fool.
2: And it, it just occurred to me that I think this might also be a turning point for Magrat as well, where she's like, okay, he's still him. I can still be me doing this, like, so maybe I can be queen. Like, I can still be with him. There's hope.
0: To explain what we're talking about to anyone who hasn't read the book, I'm just going to do a direct quote here, because summarizing couldn't do it justice. He'd always slept in front of the door to his master, and now he was king, he slept in front of the door to his kingdom. Magrat also discovers a letter that her fiancé received at some point while she had been traveling, but we don't get to find out what it says just yet. The celebration begins, and various nobles from the surrounding region have come to congratulate King Verence, though Magrat is absent. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og are worried about this, but they get distracted when Nanny is propositioned by Casananda, and Granny reunites with Ridcully, who it turns out was the young man we saw chasing young Esmeralda at the flashback at the start of the book.
2: Yeah, my, my note here is... I looked it up. I couldn't find it, so I'm not going to extrapolate on that.
0: It looks like you're referencing that bit in Equal Rights when Granny also had a relatively romantic history with the then Arch Chancellor in that book.
2: Okay, so I wasn't losing my mind. Oh,
0: yeah, this is basically a repeat of what happens in that, but just done better. Listen, there's no continuity errors in Discworld. There's simply alternate pasts.
2: Okay, in, in this book, that is extremely accurate.
0: Ridcully teleports himself and Granny Weatherwax far from the party, back to the bridge where they had parted ways decades ago. They talk for a while, partly complaining about the young people in their respective magical professions, but mainly about how they lost touch despite their mutual romantic interest.
2: I have feelings with a capital F. So, pulling it all back into duality between the witches and wizards, the old and the young, it's really just laid out here at this point, especially um, that it, there's a very stark difference. The We've already brushed upon the witches being more natural, spiritual, working with the people, whereas the wizards are mathematical above it all. You know, runes and spell books and towers and everything you'd associate with a wizard. But we've been coming to find out that the young wizards... Have a more scientific approach. We hear it a lot with Ponder. And then you have the younger witches like Magrat, who are more into the ritual of it all the crystals, cards, etc., that we had touched upon as being more for show than anything else. And then just the way the younger group, I suppose, feels they need to prove themselves and that how they do things works just as well. Whereas the older group, sees things a lot more simply like no you don't need all that you can just spoil it down to its bare essence but at the same time can be pretty hard-headed about that and invalidate the younger group yeah it's it's all all laid out here in this section and it's some pretty good world building in my opinion
0: there's a definite sense of mortality from this scene as well Mm-hmm. The reason why old people tend to reject young people and their ideas and things is because it's, I think, rooted in, at least, this sense of feeling abandoned and left to entropy.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that, on, that just made me consider some things. I I heard that as, before I go, I have to make my mark on the world, but everything's changing, so my mark is just going to get erased any, anyway.
0: Dang, that's good.
2: Mm-hmm. Time to go appreciate the elderly some more.
0: <laughs> While well, we still have some. <laughs> oh, oh, dark. Oh, <laughs> That's too far. That's too far.
1: <laughs> I like that the... Because we always hear... We very frequently hear about Nanny Og's past relationships throughout these hmm. books. And it's kind of nice to hear about grannies. You know, like, she was young once despite how it may seem, and she had her own loves and losses involved with all that. No, old people are always old. They have only ever been old. <laughs> and I feel like especially because she is kind of a, a very blunt, rough around the edges character. It's very nice to see that, you know, she was just like a young person who's in love and, you know, presumably a little less rough around the edges at that point. And then it didn't work out in this universe. Yeah, in this one.
2: That's That's okay, though, because I like this granny.
0: So, this is what I was talking about regarding important wizards stuff in this story. Not only does this book codify the dynamic between Ridcully and Ponder Stibbons, where the latter a- attempts to explain high minded magical theories which the former deflates, but this moment where Ridcully and Granny are discussing lost love and could have been adds a new dimension to Ridcully's character. I don't know if this really invites the audience to reevaluate him entirely, but the way he interacts with Granny exposes how much the two of them care about each other in very different ways. Going into how this informs our understanding of Granny, she spends much of this conversation trying to push Ridcully away, but at no point does she actually deny having feelings for him. In fact, I would argue that this is about several things. Granny does care about Ridculli and is trying to protect him from the heartbreak centered in the fact that she feels she's going to die soon but also granny has got herself locked in this state of isolation and is sabotaging her own chance at happiness because of the inherent
1: risk yeah, I think that's a really thoughtful way to think about it. Yeah, I, I agree. I like that aspect
2: as well. I, If anybody could just fly on the wall, spy on some of the conversations I have with other people when I get into a new game or into a new story, I frequently will just stop what I'm doing to message somebody is like, this character is soft. They weren't soft before, but now they're soft and I'm melting. <laughs>
0: As they're talking, Ridcully brings up the idea of parallel universes, and Granny realizes why she's been feeling off-kilter. Since it is crop circle time, when the parallel universes get close together, her superhuman sense of self means that she's aware of what's happening to her in other timelines. Shortly after this revelation, the two of them are attacked by the Elf Queen's pet, a unicorn as majestic as it is dangerous. You know, horses are scary enough at the best at times.
2: <laughs> could have been worse. It could have been a Kelpie. There are many danger horses out there.
0: <laughs> Not the least of which being horses.
2: They have scary bones.
0: And some of those scary bones are teeth. Back in the main town, the entertainment is about to begin, when suddenly the entire audience becomes entranced by a mysterious presence. In the castle, Magrat is brimming over with rage at the contents of the letter, and about how she had been left out of the planning and preparation for the wedding. Elsewhere in the castle, Diamanda wakes from her poison-induced coma with magic in her eyes. The young woman accosts Sean Og, presumably freeing the captive elf along the way, and Sean runs to Magrat. The elves have broken through the barrier into the Discworld, and are singing their terrible hypnotic song. Through a mix of trickery and adrenaline, Magrat evades the elves long enough to get into the armory. There, she finds the armor of Yinsi, Lanker's legendary warrior queen. As Magrat puts on the iron plate mail, she feels the spirit of Queen Yinsi fill her with the confidence and power to go and rescue her fiancé and save the kingdom.
2: I really liked Magrat in these moments here. When she saw the portrait of Yancy, following along my earlier point of her wanting to find a home, is that she sort of found it in that tapestry that, okay, so I don't have to be what they think of a queen to be. I don't have to be this this pretty face just in dresses and barely doing anything. I can be myself at the same time because look at her, she was not the kind of queen that was expected. So I sort of saw that as a defining moment for Magrat, or rather, a moment of Magrat redefining herself. But yeah, the, the fact that she she released a Grebo in front of Sean just made that whole scene that much better.
0: While Magrat takes one of the elvish horses, and the Lenker Morris men keep a number of elves distracted by violently performing at them. Nanny Og makes her own journey. She brings Casananda to a different part of the kingdom, far from the dancers, but in many ways a similar doorway. It is the prison for the king of the elves. The king attempts to attack Nanny, but she reveals that during a visit to Jason's forge, she took one of the old horseshoes from Death's horse, meaning that no elf, not even the king, can hurt her. She tells the king to stop his wife, the queen. But the king makes no promises.
2: I really enjoyed the description of the king as this this tall horned figure with, I believe, uh, legs like goat legs. I think you're right on that. That's actually a description I've seen pretty often. Um, I've seen it in reference, I believe, to pagan horned god. As well as uh, I've seen it as a description of Oberon, the king of the fairies. So that was very well done.
1: I appreciate the juxtaposition between the like queen's ethereal beauty, and the like terror of the uh, terror of the king of the elves. Because I think it just kind of highlights the differences of why the king and the queen don't get along fundamentally.
2: But also, we finally got the build-up payoff of the stick and bucket dance. <laughs> finally, I had been waiting so long. And I just realized while we were recording, they attached bells on themselves before doing the dance. And it's a folk dance, so I'm assuming there's like a lot of stepping and kicking and stuff. So I'm assuming that they're whacking people with the bells as if it was a skip it hitting you in the ankle. Oh, gosh. That's why everybody got so hurt.
0: (laughs) Granny Weatherwax tricks Ridcully into teleporting himself back to the castle meaning that he is out of magic and stuck there while she goes to face the queen alone. Magrat meets up with the other wizards, and together they make their way to the Dancers, where Varence is unconscious, and Granny and the queen are stalemated in a magical duel, centered on Granny commanding a swarm of bees to fight the majority of the elves. Rather than prolong the tie, Granny protects Magrat from the queen's glamour, revealing the elf for what she truly is. Frail, scrawny, and exceptionally punchable. (laughs) Heck yeah. And Magrat may be skinny and soft and a wet hen, but like a burning star, she has a core of iron. Not to mention plenty of experience being made to feel insignificant and getting over it. So Magrat beats up the queen, but before she strikes the final blow, the king projects out his magical aura, and the queen is forced to retreat as everyone falls asleep.
2: Big glowing red-orange-yellow letters coming up or going down, just projecting out, just big, big on thought.
0: Everyone wakes up, except for Granny Weatherwax.
2: They had us in the first half, I'm not gonna lie.
1: At this point, after everything we've been to for the last, like, chunk of the book, I kinda had, like, in the forefront of my mind, forgotten that Granny Weatherwax, like, was feeling that she was going to die soon. And so then all of a sudden, like, we get to this point, and it kind of, like, all rushes back to me, and I'm like, oh, no. But they
2: can't do that. But they can, and that's the twist you weren't expecting. But there was foreshadowing, so it has to be real, but it can't be real, but it is, but, oh.
0: Nanny Og goes to Granny's cottage and finds her will in a special box. But also there, she finds... Granny's Signature Sign. I feel like we haven't talked about Borrowing up until now, primarily because it's been sort of left as a world-building detail, but it's an important aspect of things. For the uninitiated, it's a special form of witch magic where you send your mind out of your body and into the body of something around you, especially an animal. You're not controlling the animal, just sort of hitching a ride. Borrowing is very much a subtle, sensible form of magic emblematic of how witchcraft is defined as practicality putting in the effort and having mutual professional respect for the natural world note that while you're borrowing you can't typically move your own body which is why granny has a sign she holds up which says i ain't dead
2: presumably because she's had some unfortunate accidents in the past
1: well it also mentions it here just like it's a sentence i think of uh where Magrat supposedly, like, went into Granny's house and found her like that and, like, Grant and Nanny Og crying.
0: Aw, forgot about that. Indeed, Granny Weatherwax was borrowing the mass swarm of Lanker's bees, and Nanny and Magrat together make sure the swarm can get to Granny's body for her mind to return.
2: My running theory right now, or flying theory, is that Granny was only able to get into the swarm's mind, her, their hive mind, Because she herself was also fragmented by all the thoughts and memories of her past selves or potential past selves. Because she had made mention that she had a hard time connecting with bees, and only with bees, because they were so many all at once. They functioned as a singular unit while remaining separate, which is exactly her relationship with her parallel or perpendicular
0: selves. That's a really good point. I hadn't actually considered it until you mentioned it.
1: Yeah, I hadn't either.
0: She wakes up and is almost immediately her old self again. So she orchestrates the royal wedding with the librarian as Varence's best man. At the reception, Varence asks Casanunda to tutor him in certain private matters. Wink. (laughs) While Magrat talks about being aided by the spirit of Queen Yinsi, unaware of of the fact that there was no such person in Lanker's history.
1: I think this, like, is a very, and I didn't even realize it until we came back to Queen Yancy, like, briefly before, that, the like, Pratchett's belief in the power of stories, you know? Like, Yancy doesn't have to be a real person, but she is important because she's important to Magrat.
0: But there's one last thing to take care of. The unicorn, lost without the queen, leaps out to attack Granny and Nanny. But Granny, who has… retained the traditional qualification needed to tame a unicorn, brings it to Jason Oggs' Smithy, along with a silver tea set which she has him make into shoes for the beast. Once shod, the unicorn becomes tame and gallops off into the woods. With that, the last link is severed between the elves and the human world.
1: This scene's really nice because it mentions early in the book that the unicorn is driven mad by the queen, like forcing herself into its mind. And so this feels like a nice little bit of like catharsis and relief. It's like, yeah, the unicorn's free, as like with everything else, and now it can just be.
2: Yeah, by this point of the end, especially once it was all revealed that Granny was the one who sent the letter to Varence, as well as aggravating Magrat in the start to make her go away and really force her to fit into that queen role either to get her out of the out of the way where she wouldn't get caught up in the elves spell or to make her do what she did get angry and go help i'm still caught up in that eternal debate not eternal i'm still caught up in that internal debate i love granny very much i love i adore her character she's wonderful and it's incredibly satisfying to see something planned at the start wrap up at the end where you can see all the bits where it was foreshadowed and just it comes together so perfectly. At the same time, I'm just not the greatest fan of Granny's I know everything and it has to be done my way or more people will get hurt despite the fact that she, her personality being rough around the edges and hurting people to get what she thinks needs to get done done Even though she's right.
0: I definitely agree. And just to make sure that this is clarified for the listeners, it's revealed that Granny Weatherwax wrote the letter to Varen's explaining that, which is how he knew to plan the wedding and everything before they all got back from their world tour. And to not involve Magrat in the decisions because she would have fussed and been indecisive and everything about it for a long period of time. And I don't know that that's entirely borne out by Magrat's behavior in the story, because she can be very decisive. Everything good?
1: Luckily we're not too far from the end.
0: Yeah, we're at the end of the, like, of the summary, anyway. There's some more stuff I want to go over.
1: So, that was Lords and Ladies. Uh, Final thoughts? I think despite my frustrations with some of the things that happened in the book, it's still really great and very much worth a read, especially if you've read the previous two books in this subseries,
2: Or even if you didn't and just are able to accept that things happened and will be referenced.
0: Some additional stuff that was cut out of the summary. I want to go back to my point about the elves being a metaphor for toxic cultural trends. It's no coincidence that they are referred to as lords and ladies. Because feudal nobility, declaring the virtue of bloodlines, is fundamentally the same principle as a race being superior. If one family can be inherently better than all other families, why can't that be true for all people of the same skin color? Right? You see where that goes.
2: Or same species in this. Yeah.
0: Exactly. That's why King Varence, who I'll remind everyone is not of noble blood, is the most potent force for progress in Lankar, because to him, his position incurs not importance, but responsibility. Mm -hmm. And this is also why the elves hate iron. It would be more accurate to the folklore if they hated cold iron, or steel as we call it now, but metallurgy in general is a tangible representation of human civilization, at least from a Eurocentric perspective. But taking rocks out of the ground and turning them into tools literally transforming an aspect of nature through ingenuity, patience, and discipline, it's a manifestation of our ability to think beyond the world as it's presented. The modus operandi of the elves is to make those around them feel small, but our problem-solving capabilities mean that we are able to overcome challenges far greater than ourselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's like a really, really great way to look at it, because... In a lot of fantasy there is some fairly problematic aspects about like there being like a better all-powerful like race or like subgroup of people and it's even in like some fairly innocuous things like some people are just born better wizards than others or whatever and bloodlines determine that. Well this book is definitely not a new book and so it's refreshing to see that those ideas, those problematic ideas that have been like ingrained into fantasy are being challenged even at this point
2: that was brought up rather specifically in the text as well especially with the elves aversion to iron the reason they couldn't assert themselves on the majority human populace of the disc was because they had as the witches said they had iron in their heads
0: and it's Through technological, but mostly cultural development, that we learn and grow beyond the ideas of mythic superiority. Not without our own new problems, like industrialization has its own foibles, but in this specific instance, it's very much about rejecting, I want to say primitive superstition, but that's not a useful way to phrase it.
2: It's an interesting dichotomy, I suppose, between what you learn and what you're presented and then what you do with it.
0: Because this very much is a story about growing and like learning and and deciding for yourself what you are. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And rejecting the idea that you can only be what has been decided you are, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Another thing. Something that has been bothering me for several books about Magrat's character. Basically there are these two sides to her, one sappy and romantic, and the other steel-minded and practical. She's probably the most nuanced character in the whole series, but I don't know if the books treat her as such. One specific moment that bothered me was how she fell victim to the same assumptions about elves that Jason Og and Varence did, believing them to be fictional and or benign, when I'd say it would have helped the narrative more if she had been quicker on the uptake, since that would have also helped build Build up the momentum to her going full Iron Man on them.
1: <laughs> I totally second that, especially because I figured that once that she learned about the elves, it would become kind of apparent that the witches should have just trusted her judgment in the first place and told her what the situation was. I mean, they
0: should have trusted her, but I think also part of their plan was to rile her up so that she was building up that head of steam to be able to physically fight the elves. Yeah. Like like Danny touched on earlier.
1: Yeah. And I can totally see that just at this point when I was reading, I was still like feeling like, okay, the point's going to be like, you know, you should just like talk to each other about things and, you know, you fix problems a lot more easily that way. And this kind of felt like it was kind of bucking that.
0: And speaking of the armor, I wish that Queen Yinsi had been hinted at earlier in the story, like around when Magrat first moves into the castle. Some more build-up time and anticipation could have brought Magrat's suiting-up scene from good to great.
2: She needs a theme song. She's a tiny tank.
0: She needs her own wrestling
2: theme. That's copyright!
0: <laughs> but yeah. Also, definitely, if I was going to be doing an adaptation of this story to a movie, definitely I would have Magrat, like, deliver the one-liner of One Queen in the Hive right before she knocks out the yeah. Queen of the Elves. <laughs> before we say goodbye for this month, I want to wish all our listeners good luck in these uncertain times. Wash your hands, try not to panic, and be sure to take care of yourselves and each other. Now that I've killed the mood significantly, let's bring it back up for the thank yous thanks as always to willow carter for our theme music big thanks to our patreon support where anyone can help keep this show going for as little as a dollar a month with cool rewards including a chance at getting a shout out in the episode this month the patreon shout out goes to robin who continues to be our small god
1: yay thank you robin
0: Uh, you can also follow us on twitter facebook and tumblr or chat with us directly on our discord server All of those places are also where we share links to the monthly Favorite Footnote poll, which this month is a tie. It
1: was bound to happen, I think. The Carter parents were a quiet and respectable linker family who got into a bit of a mix-up when it came to naming their children. First, they had four daughters, who were christened Hope, Chastity, Prudence, and Charity. Because naming girls after virtues is an ancient and unremarkable tradition. Then, their first son was born, an out-of-sun misplaced idea about how this naming business was done. He was called Anger Carter, followed later by Jealousy Carter, Bestiality Carter, and Covetousness Carter. Life being what it is, Hope turned out to be a depressive, Chastity was enjoying life as a lady of negotiable affection in ankh pork. Prudence had 13 children, and Charity expected to get a dollars change out of 75 pence. Whereas the boys had grown into amiable, well-tempered men, and Bestiality Carter was, for example, very kind to animals.
2: The shortest unit of time in the multiverse is the New York Second, defined as the period of time between the traffic light turning green and the cab behind you honking.
0: That's it for this month. Check your local library for the next book in the series, Men at Arms. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.